Hello, podcasting world, and it's time for yet another episode of Core Consult RX Podcast. My name is Mike Corvino. With me, as always, is my good buddy, Dr. Cole Swanson. Cole, what's up, buddy? I feel like my brain is about to explode from knowledge. Wow. Yeah, just seeping out of my ears. Yeah, it's not good. Yeah. I want to get that checked. And none of it's about this topic. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> we uh, we just got back from listening to uh, Dr. Scott Bragg and Dr. Wayne Wirt grill some, some fourth-year pharmacy students on uh, their recommendations for certain ambulatory care rotations and uh, why they made recommendations for several different disease states. We covered everything from pericarditis mm-hmm. to uh, diabetes. diabetes Sickle cell crisis. Sickle cell crisis, all kinds of stuff. It's four hours straight with only four students. Only four students presented. <laughs> I love uh, not being on the grill side. Yeah, it's way better Yeah, being on the better side. The, ba- the, the baked. Uh, we're baked, they're grilled. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Or fried, maybe. I don't know. Um, I just prefer the side that asks questions yeah. and not, <laughs> gives not answers. put on the uh, spot. <laughs> well, it is easier to answer the questions now that I've been through it for like four years now. Yeah, yeah. So that's good. High quality info. Yeah, it is. It's solid. So uh, we'll have to, we've actually got some information from uh, Dr. Wirt that uh, some some new stuff hitting uh, the pipeline here pretty quick. So we'll cover that in soon. Um, we'll cover that pretty soon in some um, podcast episodes. But For sure. Today, we're going to cover uh, IBS. Yes. Already done um, Crohn's. Crohn's or Crohn, however you say it. Yeah, we did that. We did that. We have not done ulcerative colitis. No, but we're going to cover IBS today, and then we'll come back to the inflammatory bowel disease and do ulcerative colitis later on. Well, have we done any other GI stuff? I think that was mm, it. It's hard to say. Yeah, it is. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that'll that'll finish up the the GI suite as far as that goes. Yeah, as far as diarrhea and constipation goes. <laughs> the sweet. Love talking about that. Yeah, we did. Uh, yeah, we um I'm trying to think if we did anything else, but we'll we'll uh, definitely um round it back and then probably look at uh maybe some ulcers and yeah, some oh yeah. things like that. We did H pylori, so that's yes, GI. We did that. So many episodes about GI. We did now. peptic ulcer disease. We've done that already. Yes. Didn't we? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Right. Oh, that was H- along with it. H. Okay, gotcha, yeah, gotcha. Yeah. That was along with that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um but uh, someone's asking to join the live feed on the podcast. Sorry, maybe next time I can't reach you from here. <laughs> but um, the uh, or live feed from Instagram, not the podcast. We're on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we are, Mike. Do you remember? I, I do now. Sorry. But, um, yeah, so we'll go through that, uh, go through some of the treatment options. We're going to look at IBS, uh, constipation, mm-hmm. and diarrhea, and then mm-hmm. obviously the mix. You can kind of fill in the blanks, but we're going to look at um, both uh, constipation and diarrhea, see how it goes. Hopefully, we won't take too much time. Yeah. But, you know um, what I've, I've realized looking into this a little bit? Hmm. I definitely have IBS. Oh, goodness. Yeah. Well, maybe not definitely, but I don't see how anybody couldn't have IBS at some point in their lives. Which they say the prevalence is extremely high, you know, to have had it. But, um, yeah, it seems like it's just like a 100% kind of thing. Like, yeah. who doesn't experience this every once in a while? No, yeah, it's true. I think this is more frequent than every once in a while. Well, it's got it's got diagnostic criteria. We'll go into it, but it's really, it's like... Yeah, it's pretty vague. It's, yeah, it's, it it's, is. Um, you can apply it to a lot of stuff, mm-hmm. you know? So, you know... It's, it's kind of hard because like you, it's almost like where do you even start with this because you're right the symptoms are kind of they, they they can't apply but i think it's more so when someone is having uh, issues to the point where it's becoming bothersome to their quality of life yeah yeah 
So that being said, where do you want to start? Uh, well, you know, what is it? How does it differ from other intestinal disorders? So uh, it's a functional GI disorder. Usually you're going to have abdominal pain, going to have obviously altered bowel habits, uh, but it's in the absence of a specific and some other type of unique organic pathology. So uh, in some rare cases, this is kind of relatively recent, they've seen some like really small microscopic inflammation uh, that's been documented in some patients with IBS, but usually it's more or less uh, idiopathic as far as an actual organic physiology goes. People just kind of have it, and it, it's related to certain things and certain um, habits or states of mind, but for the most part not related to anything specific to um, the gut. So it's pretty prevalent, about 10 to 20 percent. Uh, the incidence is about 1 to 2 percent per year of pretty much anybody. Uh, it's generally more common in women, uh, especially adolescent women, but um, does occur in men. And specifically, it's extremely common in um, men from India, strangely, like 70%. Mm. But for the most part, in like um, Western civilization, much more common in women. And so when we say irritable bowel syndrome, um, you know, that's it kind of an overarching term. I mean, it has, like I said, there's, there's different versions of it. So we have IBS with constipation. We have IBS with diarrhea. There is mixed IBS and there's unclassified. Um, so patients that are considered to have IBS with constipation, um, patients that would report, uh, abnormal bowel movements, um, usually, um, based on a rating scale. Um, and then you can kind of figure out from there, um, sort of how many bowel movements they're having per week um, or like whether it's loose, whether it's um, hard. And uh, they call it the uh, Bristol um – um, I'm completely drawing a blank now. What is it? Bristol, uh, Bristol types one and two for uh, constipation are unclassified, and then if it's uh, more the Bristol type seven and or six and seven, then there's a uh, it's considered more on the diarrhea side, and then mixed is somewhere in between. But there's this kind of rating scale that you can use based on what the person describes uh, their stool consistency basically um, is way a way you can uh, actually measure out um, and and give this some sort of a quantifiable rating. Poor Bristol, you know. Mm -hmm. I don't think if, if I could have had anything named after me, I'm not sure it would be descriptions of of poo. <laughs> you know what I, I, mean? I mean, it's cool that he has something named after yeah, him. Yeah, at least that's true. I don't think he, I have anything named after me. did more than I have so yeah. far. But my favorite description is um, stools of narrow caliber for um, IBSC. Yes. But also painful and frequent defecation uh, that's frequently intractable to laxatives. So got to do more so there there's some other things that can kind of uh be going on too and so if you have ibs and there are other issues happening along with it so if the person has um more than minimal rectal bleeding if there is um, unexplained weight loss unexplained iron deficiency anemia um nocturnal symptoms patients have like a family history of things like colorectal cancer, um, inflammatory bowel disease, uh, things like that, then they need to be referred as well and mm -hmm. not just treated um, with just standard IBS care. Exactly. And um, with IBS diarrhea, it's usually described as small volumes of loose stool with evacuation preceded by urgency uh, or frequent defecation. Frequently there's postprandial urgency. Uh, and you can alternate between constipation and diarrhea, which, like we said, would be the, the mixed subtype. 
So um, I guess let's talk uh, some about dietary modification. Because one of the biggest diets that we we always bring up with IBS is the FODMAPS um, diet, the low FODMAPS diet. Um, if you are not familiar with that, um, there's actually uh, it, it breaks it down into a way that patients can kind of um, remember which fo- foods to avoid. Uh, the only problem is is it encompasses just about all the foods you'd really want to eat. <laughs> want to eat. So the F uh, stands for fermentable. Um, the O is oligosaccharides, which is like your um, galacto oligosaccharides, so things like wheat, barley, rye. Um, garlic, uh, some of the nuts fall into that category, like pistachios, cashews, um, lentils would fall into that. Um, and then the D is disaccharides. Um, the one they're talking about specifically is lactose, uh, which of course is like your your milk, your ice creams, your yogurts. Um, and then monosaccharides to avoid would be the uh, free fructose. Um, so f- different types of fruits like apples, pears, uh, cherries, watermelons, uh, asparagus, uh, peas, honey, high fructose corn syrup, obviously. That's probably one that uh, we should all avoid even though. I'm drinking an energy drink as, we, talk, the good stuff. as we speak. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, the A, which is, is pretty good because the A just stands for and. So okay. that one's okay. easy to remember. Not and apples? Then, uh, not apples, just and. Um, and then uh, the last one, the P, is um, polyols, which is your sorbitol, your mannitol, xylitol, things like that. Um, so that's going to be, uh, like again, like apples, pears, um, a lot of your uh, other f- – kind of more uh, obscure fruits, nectarines, plums, things that not everybody necessarily eats. But, Some people um, eat plums. Yeah, Some true. people recommend plums for constipation. Mm. You know, they'll say eat four plums a day. Wow. Maybe they meant little, those little plum bites. <laughs> <laughs> four plums is a lot of plums. I feel like you're just giving false information now. <laughs> I've, but, I've um, heard, okay, ignore the four part, but I definitely have heard plums for constipation before. But also uh, chewing gum. Chewing gum has xylitol and things in it so i chew gum literally all the time i chewed the same piece of gum for 12 hours the other day at work Oof, yeah that's gross i mean a lot it was you could probably afford like well a new pack by now right well, it was like the mentos gum it was good for the whole time oh okay so shout out to them but <laughs> yeah the, the diet's important because of um the patho basically behind ibs and there's there's three main mechanisms uh, one is altered GI motility, which is kind of a given. There's also visceral hyperalgesia that you're going to experience, and then there's also a certain type of psychopathology uh, to it. So there's there's um, a little bit of psych going on that you have to assess and potentially treat or even refer out. Uh, but basically with the GI, there's usually, as far as um, colonic motility, there's slow waves of electrical activity uh, with... Uh, occasional spike potentials, which would be like the colon contracting, and then you having a bowel movement. Uh, but with IBS, it's it's kind of off kilter. It's not moving as um, controlled or as frequently as you would want. So sometimes you're not going to have as many spikes. Sometimes the spikes are coming at the wrong time, and it's causing frequent diarrhea or it's causing constipation. Um, and so the motility is thrown off. With visceral hyperalgesia. Uh, generally, there's an enhanced perception of normal motility. Uh, so this visceral pain characterizes IBS. Um, there's sometimes small bowel balloon inflation that can produce pain, so it's basically gas. Um, 
at lower volumes in patients than um, people who don't have IBS. Uh, so this this hyper awareness or hyperalgesia of the gut will um, sometimes cause potential anxiety and induce uh, the con- the colon to constrict and um, can add to this whole psychopathology. So there are associations between psychiatric disturbances and IBS, though uh, they're not exactly sure how it works. The pathogenesis is not clearly defined, but uh, they they know that treating uh, psych- psychologic illnesses, comorbidities, frequently does help uh, the IBS symptoms, whether it's an antidepressant uh, or whether it is um, some type of psychotherapy. It usually helps there is some conflicting data. Some says that, yes, it helps in the short term, but long-term outcomes aren't necessarily great. Um, but it is they are sure that there is some psychotherapy component uh, to IBS. And uh, going, kind of one more thing to mention, too, um, going back to, to diet real briefly, um, what about gluten? Mm-hmm. So gluten is kind of one of those things that uh, has become a a cultural phenomenon and oh yeah you know there is obviously um conditions that have to do with uh you know like celiac disease and things like that that's that causes true uh um gluten sensitivities but there's also non-celiac gluten sensitivities um and that could play a role in patients who um have IBS with uh, diarrhea um some of the evidence is kind of conflicting as to whether or not that's you know, avoiding gluten in the diet is really beneficial in IBS, but it is worth a shot if you want to try it with, you know, one of your patients. Um, it's not going to hurt them, obviously. And if you get some benefit, then great. If not, then go back to gluten. Well, th- there was a small study uh, where patients were undergoing a gluten-free diet and they kind of rechallenged gluten in a double-blind fashion. And two-thirds of the patients ended up with poor symptom control after that. Um, they're, they're not exactly sure why there was a very significant placebo response, about 40%, which kind of throws things off a little bit. They didn't really see an increase in the celiac disease, um, HLA haplotypes. Uh, they didn't really see any markers of IBS. So they're not exactly sure why it was a small study, but you know, I'm sure there's something to it. It's just, it's not all clear. Hmm. I might go back to, uh, you were saying some some of it's psychological and whatnot. There yeah. might be a portion of that as well still. Certainly, yeah. All right, so you want to jump into some of the uh, medications? Let's do it. All right. What do we got? So, um, you know, I guess probably the easiest one to uh, mention off the bat is looking at fiber, increasing fiber, um, whether it's in the diet or uh, taking a fiber supplement. Um their data is a little bit controversial as well. Um, there's several different uh, products available. There's like Metamucil, which is the um, psyllium. There's um, Fibercon. There's Citrulocell, There's uh, which is like the methyl cellulose. Um, so there's there's several different versions of fiber available. Uh, the mechanism of action, um, kind of uh, around that, is. Um, where the the fiber can form this like gel like matrix um, with the uh, with the stool, it soaks up fluid in the loose stool and adds bulk to the stool as well. Um, 
And so it's it's something that can help with IBS symptoms. Um, it's contraindicated if the person obviously has like some sort of a, an obstruction um, or like fecal impaction or something like that. But it can uh, it can help. And then um, the onset of action is typically twelve to seventy two hours. And uh, you probably want to take it two hours before or after other drugs because it could uh, decrease some of the absorption of other medications for other disease states and whatnot. And fiber, what is actually been shown to help with constipation and diarrhea so mm-hmm. with both uh, you definitely want to individualize treatments because some patients do actually experience exacerbated bloating um, and even more distension with high fiber diets but like mike mentioned there are those two compounds um, they think that the polycarbophils like citrus cell or fibrocon may produce less flatulence than the psyllium compounds which is metamucil uh, so that might be something to consider in somebody who may not be tolerating it as well some some studies to kind of look through when you're real bored one day. There's a um, systematic review from 2011 um, that unfortunately didn't show any benefits to uh, the bulking agents over placebo for improving abdominal pain that was associated with IBS. Um, however, there was a uh, 2012 study that was in um, the British Medical Journal um, that did show um, slight improvement in overall symptoms of IBS uh, with um, using psyllium in, in particular. Um, 2008 study, they used uh, Bran um, specifically to increase fiber content, and there was no, no benefit there. Um, but it still is, um, and I'm pretty sure it's still considered like the treatment of choice in things like pregnancy and yeah. other um, situations where you have to be able to use a little bit more caution. And the fiber is definitely still controversial when you look at the data because uh, about 40 to 70% of the patients actually improved in the placebo groups where they were studying the fiber. So, you know, it goes back to that psychological component of this, um, which we did mention caffeine with the diet, but yeah, caffeine avoidance or limitation may uh, be a good idea because it might limit anxiety um, and symptom exacerbation of IBS as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, after fiber, there's um, other, you know, pretty simple over-the-counter uh, options that you can look at, such as um, Miralax polyethylene glycol, um, which is also uh, inexpensive. Um, you know, when side effects are considered and stuff, it's pretty mild. Um, again, it's probably something that... Uh, you know, it can help the constipation aspect, not going to really help with abdominal pain. Um, you know, it's going to have a limited effect to people who have um, IBS. And uh, there's some small studies that have kind of looked at it. Um, you know, but again, no no real difference when you compare it to things like placebo um, for like um, severity of bloating, abdominal pain, things like that. Um, but if you do decide to do the polyethylene glycol, um, remember that um, typically for an adult dose, you're talking 17 grams, which is one capful, and you can dissolve it in eight ounces of water and then uh, kind of titrate up or down as, as need be. Um, technically, the maximum is 34 grams um, per day, and so you can do two capfuls, but um, some of the side effects and stuff at that point may uh, may come into play. Yeah, the over-the-counter one's always going to, or generally is going to say one cap for yeah, right? yeah, it will. They can go up to 34. Mm-hmm. That so, stuff will get you moving. Yeah. Yeah. I think. I've never used it, but that's what people tell me. Yeah. I've seen a lot more uh, GI docs um, prescribing Miralax uh, with like um, 
the 64 ounces of Gatorade as bowel preps mm-hmm. instead of giving like the yeah. big uh, new lightlies or mm-hmm. any of those. Um, seems to be more and more moving in that direction. I've seen um, primary care docs uh, have their el- older patients on Miralax like just all the time, once a day. So because they're supposed to be having like multiple bowel movements a day, I guess. And um, they because apparently it helps them sleep better and they almost all the time when um, they have lower back pain or something, he does a abdominal ultrasound to check for stool buildup and all this kind of stuff. So it's interesting. And I, you know, I never really considered it to be that significant. I was like, well, if you're going every day or two, you're probably fine. But apparently not. Apparently not. So I don't know. I'm sure there's mixed opinions on that. Yeah. And, you know, there's other things that are considered like osmotic laxatives, magnesium hydroxide, which is like the milk of magnesia. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just plain lactulose, there's glycerin suppositories, which nobody's a fan of. <laughs> but, yeah, those, there's definitely issues with potentially electrolyte imbalance, um, bloating, things like that. So, A lot of other over-the-counter stuff. Another one is Imodium. You've probably mm-hmm. seen Lapiramide. Um, that one doesn't have all that great reviews ultimately with, with IBS with diarrhea. Um, it tends to, to stop them up, but they still have some significant, uh, pain, bloating, other IBS symptoms. So the American college of gastroenterology, um, doesn't really love it. They're, yeah. they're like, it can be used, but you know, we're, we're not going to push for that one. Um, the other thing is too, which is kind of weird with, um, lapiramide is there's actually like an abuse potential. Have you seen that? I have seen that. Yeah. There's people that take, I mean, it's, it's crazy amounts that you have to take, but I've, there's definitely people who have, have even passed away from taking too high doses of, um, lapiramide. So, um, if you see someone that's taking quite a bit of it, then. Doesn't it act on like the mu opioid receptors mm -hmm. or something like that? Yeah. But usually if it takes such a high amount, they don't worry about it. That's why right. it's not a controlled substance. But apparently there is this, uh, you know, population that is using it for euphoric purposes. Right. Because at regular doses, it acts in the gut um, and inhibits intestinal muscles to slow peristalsis and intestinal motility. So basically mm-hmm. slow you down. Yep. Um, so what about some of our more expensive agents? Yeah. So I guess on that same vein, I guess it's not super expensive, but there's Lamotil. Um, which is a controlled substance, but it's diphenoxylate with atropine. Uh, so that's something you might see used for IBS um, with diarrhea, and it's constipating, and um, you've got the anticholinergic effect, you know, can't see, can't spit, and all that. Um, so, yeah, that's why that's used. Yep. All right, so let's look at uh, some of our newer agents um, over the last few years. Um, in particular, for IBS constipation, we have drugs like Amatiza, which is a uh, chloride channel activator. It's going to act locally on the apical membrane of the GI tract, uh, which is going to increase fluid secretion and improve fecal transit. Um, it's technically approved for IBS constipation in women mm-hmm. who are 18 years and older. So technically not approved in men, although I have seen certain males on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm assuming it's more of just how they studied it and things. I haven't seen anything real specific as far as why a man couldn't take it, um, other than what its labeled indications are. But don't quote me on that one. That's just more 
I haven't seen anything. And these are pretty expensive, but you'll yeah. see them pop up. I mean, I've, I've definitely seen MTs, and I see Linzest relatively frequently. Um, so Linzest is linaclotide, which is a guanylate cyclase agonist. Um, basically, the way it acts is activating guanylate cyclase receptors in the intestine leads to increased uh, cyclic GMP. Um, also, anion secretion, fluid secretion, um, it improves intestinal transit. And it, it appears to work topically rather than systemically, so it would decrease any um, toxicities, I suppose. And it's also oral and used for IBSC in adults. And uh, for the pharmacist listening, um, Linzess has to be dispensed in its original container. Yes. When I was managing community pharmacy, I got dinged for having uh, a Linzess bottle opened. One of my technicians, I think, had opened it and, um, you know, gotten a partial fill or something like that for the patient and uh we ended up getting um fined for it so mm. it's um, an easy thing to do there's original because there's like um pradax has got to be in its original container mm-hmm. there's a lot of random ones and ted grabs it off the shelf stabs it and it's yeah. over or i grab it off the shelf and yeah. stab it. i'm liable to do it too yeah for sure yeah. um but also uh the other one in that class the um guanolate cyclase agonist there's also true lance um it's a uh, Plicanotide, and it's same same uh, mechanism of action as the Linzess. Um, they have black box warnings. I do want to mention that that um, because there has been some studies that have shown, and they're actual animal studies, um, so they're not done in human patients, but animal studies that have showed um, death due to dehydration in certain like rat studies, things like that. Um, they say to avoid in pediatric patients hmm. who may not be able to report true symptoms of dehydration as accurately as an adult and so they're only supposed to be used in adult patients um as far as administration goes pretty simple like cole said there are oral tablets the linzess you want to take about 30 minutes before breakfast um taking it on an empty stomach um true lance is a little bit easier you can take it with or without food it doesn't necessarily matter um but they are uh both come with a hefty price tag Yes. I forgot to mention, guys, I have sound effects now, and so I've just been dying to use one. <laughs> oh, he's been using them, just not in the, uh, not in the recording yet. Not in the yet. recording yet. I think we've given Mike way too much power with yeah. the uh, sound effects. So yeah, well. You, you will surely hear those pop up every <laughs> once in a while. And then uh, make sure you write and leave a comment. Tell Cole how much you love it, since he thinks it's not a good idea. But that's fine. say that. No, I'm just kidding. So you got to see, see what the people think. We, li- we the live for the they people. Want. Exactly. And I feel like the people want sound effects. <laughs> Even though I didn't ask anybody. <laughs> we'll Anyways. see. Uh, yeah, TrueLance is pretty cool. So it ha- definitely has that um, cyclic GMP mechanism of action, but it also uh, stimulates secretion of chloride and bicarb into the intestines, mainly by activation of the um, CFTR gene, so the cystic fibrosis transmembrane conductance regulator, which uh, if you, I think we mentioned this maybe way back when we were talking about a new drug, but. Um, that uh, plays a vital role in cystic fibrosis, that, that gene, which is a extremely horrible but fascinating disease. So we should totally do one on that someday. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. We come up with our best ideas while we're recording live. And then we forget. Yeah, we should write them down. Yeah. Or somebody should email them to us. <laughs> yeah. If you guys want to be a producer on the show, just let us know. Yeah. We're really in the market for one. We're probably going to need more hands on that we have sound effects. <laughs> oh, yeah. Someone needs to get this thing out of my control. <laughs> Anyways, write us. We'll we'll put you on. Oh yeah, but um yeah. Uh, what now? We want to. We talked about lipiramide as well. Mm-hmm. Um, another big expensive one, Viberzi. Yeah, that's a good idea. Let's uh, so Viberzi move. That's like for irritable bowel syndrome, diarrhea. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And that's one of the, the newer kids in the block for um, diarrhea uh, aspect of irritable bowel syndrome. Um, it's actually a mixed mu opioid receptor agonist. Um, it also works on the kappa opioid receptor as an agonist, um, which is going to reduce the abdominal pain and diarrhea um, in, again, specifically patients with IBS um, diarrhea. Um, it, the thought behind it is you're going to help the diarrhea without um, causing constipating adverse effects because right. you don't want to stop one and start the other. Um, so this is, that's kind of their claim to fame is that you can stop the diarrhea without causing additional constipation. And this is one of those fun ones, because if you're thinking about the mechanism of action, it's acting on the mu opioid receptors. Uh, it's like a side effect is working in our favor because mm-hmm. what, what's a side effect of opioids constipation very frequently. So, um, yeah, they kind of turned around and said, ha ha opioids, we're going to yeah. use you for good. Bam. That's how they do it. Um, this is a controlled substance because it's working on the mu opioid receptor. Uh, it is considered a controlled substance. And so explaining that to patients, I think is important, Mm -hmm. um, especially from the pharmacist standpoint that have to deal with refills and, and, and whatnot, because I've actually experienced this firsthand where a patient was asking me about their Viberzy getting it filled and it was like five days too early and I told them I couldn't fill it yet um, and the patient kind of freaked out and was like this is my diarrhea medicine I'm not abusing my diarrhea medicine <laughs> it's kind of funny but um, you know it's one of those things that uh, explaining why it's a controlled substance and not just to, you know telling them point blank because they may not even know and uh, you know ex- explain that to them though because there are going to be some um barriers there as far as when they can fill it and all that typically with you know the controlled substance laws yeah it always becomes a little bit more of a pain when you're um dealing with controlled substance for sure um contraindications patients that have uh um alcoholism problems um patients who in the technical definitions patients who drink more than three alcoholic drinks per day so not necessarily alcoholism but um, that's kind of the cutoff um, patients that have a history of alcoholism um, and then patients that uh, do not have a gallbladder are also considered contraindicated um, for having viberzy. Hmm. Um, patients that have a potential risk of pancreatitis so you know really high triglyceride levels um and then uh, make sure you take it with some food. That's one of the other manufacturing uh, recommendations. Yep, yep. So there's a couple other anticholinergics. Uh, so bental dicyclamine, you probably see a lot. I think it's used relatively commonly in hospitals, and it's definitely used outpatient pretty commonly. But it blocks the action of acetylcholine at the parasympathetic sites, um, specifically in secretory glands like smooth muscle, CNS. Or I'm sorry, in secretory glands, smooth muscle, and CNS. Uh, but it'll hopefully decrease uh, fecal urgency and pain. It's useful in patients mainly with the diarrhea symptoms. It's an anticholinergic um, and it does have adverse effects that are anticholinergic-like, but they're they're dose-related. Um, and uh, let's see, what else can we talk about here? Because um, there's other medication classes that we can use as well. There's um, antidepressants. You're using them for their mm-hmm. anticholinergic properties. Uh, and so amitriptyline, um, disipramine, nortriptyline, some of those uh, have been used, um, typically using them at bedtime. Um, potentially can help. Um, 
And I would suppose they're used for the anticholinergic properties as well as the psych component of it. Yeah, for sure. And I wonder, you know, because they can cause some stomach upset because they act on serotonin in some way. I wonder if that plays any role long term in helping with the um, the gut symptoms. I don't know. Because there is um, Lotronex, which is Elocitron. It's a 5-HT3 receptor antagonist, mm-hmm. which if sounds familiar to you is... Um, a similar mechanism or the same mechanism of a lot of the nausea medications and they'll use that for uh, irritable bowel syndrome because it, the 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 uh, cells in the gut are loaded with serotonin receptors so i wonder i wonder about the antidepressants as well yeah um i think uh there's been some studies where they've looked at um tcas you know, directly with um, or directly, I guess, um, against like SSRIs or SNRIs. Um, but, uh, I think the data is kind of inconsistent. So I don't know. Um, what about, uh, antibiotics? One in particular. There is one, a single one. <laughs> yes. It's, and it's really cheap, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, Zyfaxin, um, is, is also, uh, sometimes used in IBS. Um, there was a, a meta-analysis that included five different trials that um, looked at uh, rifaximin um, and found that it was more efficacious than placebo um, and was significantly more likely to be associated with decreased bloating as compared with placebo. Um, However, the price tag on it is usually going to be a huge barrier for patients. And, um, you know, whether or not it's it's worth that kind of a, a price and that, you, you know, who can actually get it in the first right. place is going to be very limited. And this one is one of the, the newer, um, at least for this medication, it's a newer indication. Uh, back in 2015, the FDA approved it. And they did have some phase three trials that came out that got it approved. They were the target one and target two trials. They had, you know, around 1,200 patients. And like Mike said, they... Um, improved bloating as well as abdominal pain, loose watery stools compared with placebo. Uh, but there was a tremendous placebo effect in those trials, which is, uh, I think, noteworthy because the placebo effect comes up a lot in um, in this disease state, which, you know, could go towards OTCs helping, I suppose, if, if not through their mechanism, through the placebo effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, probiotics is another one that I think yes. uh, people automatically kind of think about, but um, not routinely recommended in patients with IBS. Um, they have been uh, in some very small studies um, associated with improvement in symptoms. However, like whether or not that's clinically significant um, is a little bit debatable. So, And these are very interesting. This is a very, um, very hot topic. Probiotics are for pretty much everything. They got... <laughs> biome is a hot topic for pretty much everything. Um, I I think that there's more to probiotics and the microbiome with IBS than we know, especially because we don't, a lot of times this is, or this used to be a diagnosis of exclusion, basically. If they couldn't find a clear diagnosis, they're like, well, this is probably just IBS, and that's just what they called it. Um, But I think if once they get more into the microbiome and they can um, suss out certain people's microbiome and compare them to others who have certain disease states they may be able to use that a little more in their advantage so right now there's um they've got bifidobacterium there was one meta-analysis that says it might help relieve symptoms um you know they've looked at lactobacillus and stuff like that and it's like maybe but you know probably 
maybe if you tried everything else, it might be worth the money, but otherwise it might not be worth the money at this point. But yeah. going forward, they're an interesting thing to look into. For sure. Um, you know, there's other some there's some other, you know, kind of random um treatment options if like you know just absolutely last line there's things like acupuncture um certain herbal regimens that really don't have any good data behind them um fecal transplant though is one that uh potentially um has some some use um there was a couple small studies um there was one uh, in particular it was a randomized trial it only included 90 patients um, and it, it specifically had patients with IBS diarrhea and with mixed IBS. Um, they were assigned to um, getting a fecal transplant or placebo. Um, and at the three-month follow-up, these patients were um, were looked at to kind of see uh, their IBS symptom severity scores. Um, and uh, it didn't really have a, a huge benefit in these patients um the difference was was it was benefit in the short term but it wasn't sustained uh at the 12 month mark so whether or not it's truly beneficial is a little bit uh debatable again now fecal transplants are fascinating i've talked about the poop shake before haven't i <laughs> yeah i think, I, think so. I have yeah they're super cool if we did if we could do um we should do one on on uh on fecal transplants, at just some in point. general. Well, it's basically you're re- you're attempting to reset the person's microbiome, mm-hmm. which is a, nowadays we're realizing is a pretty huge deal. But they've been doing the the poop shakes for a little while now. Uh, so yeah, it's a pretty cool thing to look into. They're much bigger in other countries than they are here. We have a little <laughs> bit of a stigma about um, poo poo in this country and taking poo capsules and shakes and whatnot. <laughs> but uh, other countries, yeah, apparently it's a much more um, accepted treatment option. So. Kind of like suppositories. Yeah. yeah well, you even then. made reference to it with the glycerin. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> so I think uh Mike and your Western hang ups. Mm. <laughs> so close minded. <laughs> I'm just kidding. If it works, it works. I'm all for it. But yeah, that's uh anything else that we didn't really go over? I mean I'm sure there's definitely some things. There's such there's so many different random treatment options you could try. But I think we touched on a lot of the the well, big ones. Since, you know, there's not a clear uh, etiology, I guess, a lot of the times they try a lot of stuff, especially if the standard stuff doesn't work for people. So a lot of things get pulled in. Um, but, you know, I, I mentioned some stats, but um, I think an estimated 20 to 50% of gastroenterology referrals relate to this symptom complex. So a lot of people who go to see the gastroenterologist are going to have some type of issue with ibs so it's it's extremely common yeah all right anything else that we need to cover that's all i got we're gonna we're gonna drop some new data on you that uh, we got from dr work today at some point like the reduce it trial mm-hmm. you just gave our trial away uh, well go look Shoot. it up and then you can listen to us talk more about it yeah at some point you didn't even let me use my gong <laughs> my gong sound effect before we release the new data you guys are welcome <laughs> is there a drum roll uh, oh, jeez. Yes, there is. Woo. I'm so glad I got this thing. <laughs> oh, man. This oh, just adds such a new element to the pod. It's just the live podcast. It's like, going, it's like going to um to Stone Mountain and you see the 4D movies, you know, mm-hmm. where, where uh, they tickle your feet and they spray water on you and stuff. Yeah. I mean, um, it's just like that. It's like that's that for audio, though. Mm-hmm. You know, you get the whole experience. Oh, <laughs>
That's what that's what people say when they hear too many sound effects. <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez. Okay. Anyways, that's enough of that. At least you saved them for the end of the podcast. I, I know. We made it through the whole thing without goofing around. <laughs> all right. So yeah, that's uh, that's where we'll wrap it up, I guess. And um, we'll we'll come back and we'll do like ulcerative colitis and uh, do the in, other side of the inflammatory bowel disease um, pretty soon. I don't know. Not sure exactly when, but we'll we don't commit to anything. We'll work on a schedule eventually. <laughs> But, um, yeah, thank you guys so much for listening. Um, I hope you enjoy the podcast. If you do, please let us know. Give us a uh, subscribe or a uh, rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to it. If you have any questions, uh, check out the show notes. You can see our emails down there. And um, we look forward to hearing from you. And uh, in all seriousness, if anybody's interested in being like a producer on the show, just uh, go ahead and let me know. We actually need somebody. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, let me. uh, we will see you guys next time. And uh, I'll talk to you soon. Bye.